and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast, where you can learn powerful techniques to change the way you feel. I am your host, Rhonda Borowski, and joining me here in the Murrieta studio is Dr. David Burns. Dr. David Burns is a pioneer in the development of cognitive behavioral therapy and the creator of the new teen therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 30 languages. David is currently an emeritus adjunct professor of clinical psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. Hi, David. Hello, Rhonda. I got the hello in first this time. <laughs> yes, you did. Hello, Dave. Freebush. Freibush. 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 Oh, yes, I, we have the wonderful Dave Freibush with us. I have it wrong all this time. Hello, Dr. David. Hi, David. <laughs> Good to be here. I always enjoy talking to you. We've got the three Davids and Rhonda in today's <laughs> yeah, podcast. Surrounded by Davids. And we've, no, got some fantastic, we've got some fantastic stuff on physical pain. We've been talking about emotional pain for 165 podcasts, <laughs> and now we're going to turn to physical pain. I know. I'm... I always say this when I'm super excited about this episode and really happy to welcome um, David Hans Hans Hanscom. Correct. I'm sorry, I mispronounced. And he's an orthopedic surgeon for 32 years. Right. And you specialized in complex spine surgeries. Correct. And then you went through your own experience of chronic pain and eventually came up with a new formula for treating pain besides surgery and wrote an incredible book called Back in Control. And you've produced videos and you have your own podcast that David has been on a couple of times. Right. And we wanted you to come on the podcast to talk about your experience. Well, I'm excited to be here. It turns out that cognitive behavioral therapy has been a huge factor in the process that evolved in my situation. And I went to one of the top spine fellowships in the world, Minneapolis, Minnesota, back in 1985-86. I came out of there on fire that I was determined to solve the worst problem with spine surgery. I'd actually feel guilty if I could find a reason to do surgery. When I hit Seattle, Washington, we you were felt, you felt guilty if you could, could not, not do find a reason surgery. to do surgery. Oh. I just felt like that's what I that's what I could do was to do surgery. And you now, went to the top training center. Right. Uh-huh. And I felt really good about that. I was a zealot, really, about doing spine surgery. But I was always fastidious about working medications and I didn't understand psychosocial issues, even though I know they were important. I do remember as an orthopedic resident looking at a paper that said the prognosis for spine surgery had more to do with psychosocial issues than the actual anatomy. I'm going, what? That caught my attention back in 1984, many, many years ago. So just to repeat that for our listeners, uh, because uh, I want to make things as simple as possible. What was that, Rhonda? He, he wanted me to give him a sign if he was talking too fast. And I think oh, he talking, talking too, too fast. fast. Oh, right. I see. That, that was she wasn't disapproving. The middle finger salute was after. <laughs> right. no, she that wasn't. Was the thumbs, no, the we already worked down. that out in she advance. She wasn't disapproving of me. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. But you were saying that you saw a paper that indicated that the outcome from a spinal surgery, the, the, this is huge. Um, later, I'm going to tell you about a comment, one of the top, Stanford researchers made about something called fusion surgery, spinal fusion surgery. But right. at any rate, you read a paper that said that psychosocial factors, in other words, your relationships with your fact, your family, your emotional well-being, had more to do with the outcome of surgery right. than the actual anatomical problem or the severity or presence or absence of the anatomical problem. Is that what you said? That's correct. That was my first clue that something wasn't right. 
But I'm just thinking, well, this person must be faking it. They must not be really for real. You didn't believe it. Well, we're taught as surgeons that the way to deal with disability and chronic pain is to be tougher. In other words, we set up strong boundaries. People can't cross them. Somehow it's going to heal people. Wrong. What then, does that mean to set strong boundaries? Like, for instance, workers' comp, the general flavor still is among surgeons that, well, this person just doesn't want to work. Oh, uh-huh. Right? right? And so the idea is you set really strong firm boundaries, and that was right in there. That we, spent, we set really strong boundaries, there'll be less disability. What I didn't realize is that... What does it mean, though, to set firm boundaries with someone who's trying to get disability? It means you do do surgery or you don't do surgery or what? what I'm, I just want to grasp what you're saying. You don't allow them to get on disability in the first place. In other words, you create, you create so many hurdles to oh, become disabled that they just can't do it. Oh, I see. And the surgeon should say, no, you don't need the surgery. And then there's, there's like five other review papers that came out over the next 10 years saying the same thing. When I hit Seattle in 1985, we were doing nine times the rate of spine surgery per capita is any place in the entire country. These were fusions for back pain. And I asked my partners one, one day, I said, well, what's the data? And they go, well, we don't know. In 1993, a paper came out from the state of Washington that showed that the success rate of a spine fusion for back pain in a workers' comp patient was 15%, one five. Wow. Oh, wow. I thought it was 90%. And I was, and I just stopped. I didn't know what to do, but oh, I immediately yeah. just stopped doing the operation. That's what I was going to mention. The fellow at Stanford, I'm trying to think of his name. He's a brilliant mathematician, MD, researcher. He's one of Stanford Medical Center's top researchers. And he had an article in Stanford Magazine about five years ago. He was on the cover of it. One of the things he was talking about in psychiatry and medicine and surgery, how a lot of things are peddled for money that have nothing other than placebo effect. He was talking about antidepressants and various things. One thing he mentioned was that all these centers for spinal fusion surgery, right, and that it really, the data indicated it wasn't any different from placebo. Well, Dr. Eugene Karaji is the orthopedic surgeon at Stanford who put, it, put the nail in the coffin in 2006. He did a five-year study looking at back pain infusions he had very select, very carefully selected patients that, did, that he did one-level fusions on. He compared those with patients who had very grossly unstable spines. He found that the success rate for a spine fusion for back pain in a very carefully selected patient was 22%. Wow. And that was it. I mean, I, I, had, I had already stopped, but it was such a carefully done study. Then it turns out that there's actually no connection between disc degeneration and back pain. We don't know what causes back pain. We actually do know that disc degeneration does not cause back pain. Yeah, right, exactly. Degenerative Thank you. Degenerative disc disease is not a disease. Yeah. It's a, it should be called a normally aging spine. Exactly. Right? And then I wrote this book that's going to be released next month called Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? It puts people into one of four quadrants. Either there's something there to fix or not. I call it a structural problem versus non-structural. Either I can see it or I can't. And then the A versus B, is your nervous system calm or is it hypervigilant? Is it stressed? And if you are a calm person with a ruptured disc, you, you'll do fine with surgery. But if, just to simplify that, if you don't, if you're not emotionally upset, you're relaxed, but you have intense physical pain that can be related to an actual lesion. Right. 
then you're going to have a high, higher likelihood, a high likelihood of a good outcome from surgery. Correct. But if you have the same lesion and you're stressed, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do the surgery, but you also have to calm down the nervous system. You've got to deal with both. The problem right now in spine surgery is that we have people without any identifiable lesions, nothing, and we're doing these, and their nervous system's on fire. They're extremely stressed out. They've been bounced around the medical system. They're the group of people that we're doing procedure after procedure after procedure on, and it doesn't work. There's two papers out this year showing that we look at randomized prospective studies on any surgical intervention in any part of the body, heart disease, back pain, knee pain, whatever it is, none of them work in chronic pain because chronic pain is different. When you have acute back pain, it goes to the pain center. They have these research MRI scans now called functional MRI scans. With back pain, it's called the nociceptive pain or the pain center that if you have acute back pain, that lights up. For people that become chronic, the pain center always goes quiet. By 12 months, it goes only to the emotional center. Wow. The definition of chronic pain is completely different. Chronic pain is completely different than acute pain. Can I ask you to repeat that in English? The, remember, our, our, everything for me has to be at the fourth grade level. And remember that half of our listeners have IQs under 100. <laughs> you know how, how I figured that out? How did you figure that out? Because 100 is average. Yeah, right. 100 is average. Right. right. And so some of us with IQs that aren't quite so high, what you're saying is incredibly important. But just put this, like imagine I'm a fourth grader and explain it to me once again. Which part of it? Okay, so acute pain. In other words, you stub your toe, you hurt yeah. your back. It's called the nociceptive system. No, 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 that's called the acute pain, so the, 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 the right now pain system. Not that other stuff. Don't use those other words. So pain protects you. Yeah. People that are born without pain fibers actually don't survive past age 10. Oh, right, yeah. They can't survive. It's called congenital indifference to pain. Wow. They did these research MRI scans where they can they can look at activity of the brain with these very special now more granular scans. It's called functional MRI scans. If your pain persists after six to twelve months, the pain center drops to zero. The activation All, in the part of the brain that's one of the areas involved in pain it's right. no longer active. Correct. Then the emotional center lights up. Okay, your emotion. Your negative emotion part of your brain right. get, get, lights up, meaning it just has more blood supply and more firing of nerves. Right. More glucose metabolism. Yeah. Right. The brain runs on glucose or sugars. Yeah. They can mark these, label these sugars, and find out which part of the brain is metabolically active. And what part of the brain is that that's emotionally activated? Well, it's more regions now. Mm -hmm. They're looking at patterns of activity right. more than, say, like just the amygdala, stuff like that. So it's sort of patterns of activity. Mm -hmm. It turns out that emotional pain, from multiple other studies, emotional pain and physical pain are sensed in the same part of the brain. Yeah, right. Period. But what you just said is, with chronic pain, the part of your brain that normally would light up when you stub your toe or when you cut yourself accidentally, after six months, that part of your brain dot, you know, quiets down and doesn't light up. Correct. And But what happens is the emo the part of your brain that registers emotional pain, that begins to light up even more. Correct. And so what happens, you have the same pain, but a different driver. Mm. And pain say, people say, well, pain's, you're saying the pain's in my head. That's the only place pain exists. Because your brain right now is interpreting sensory input. 
I'm unconsciously shifting to my chair so my skin doesn't break down. I'm not staring into that light. What your brain does, it keeps you in a range of behaviors that's safe. When you see that range, your pain says danger. When you feel pain, it simply says danger. Pain doesn't, pain is not on this table unless I butt my head on it. In other words, my brain has to interpret the sensations, and then it says danger. That's pain. And what happens if you feel pain, in other words, your brain automatically keeps you in a range of behaviors that's safe. When you are uncomfortable, then your brain says danger, or you feel pain, or anxiety. Turns out, since emotional pain goes to the same part of the brain as physical pain, the mental pain is the bigger problem because you can't escape your thoughts. You can't escape them. You cannot escape your thoughts. Humans no. cannot escape their thoughts. My cat can just escape the predator, but my cat's not thinking about tomorrow or the next date. Humans have the problem with these thoughts, which, as we know well, cognitive distortions that go to the same part of the brain as a physical threat. Since you can't escape your thoughts, then your brain state, your, your body is now hypervigilant. It changes the body's chemistry. Instead of being full of oxytocin and dopamine and serotonin, which are the fun relaxation hormones, you're full of adrenaline, cortisol, and histamines, which are the stress hormones. You're in hyper alert, which by the way, one of the effects of hyper alert is it doubles the speed of conduction. The nerve conduction is doubled, which makes sense because you want to protect yourself. You feel the pain more. You physically feel the pain more when you're under stress. The key to the whole process, by the way, of solving chronic pain is connecting to your own capacity to heal, which allows it, allows you to regulate your body's chemistry from a stress profile to a relaxation profile. And your general contentment in life is really based on your body's chemistry. The reason I, I actually quit, first of all, going back to my story, I quit doing surgery in 1993. About that same time, I plummeted I plummeted it into chronic pain myself. And it started with a panic what, attack. What year was that? 1990. A panic attack and then pain, chronic pain. Well, it turns out that I didn't recognize it as chronic pain. But what, hap what happened, I was driving across the 520 bridge in Seattle, Lake Washington Bridge, 10 o'clock at night. I was so good at mastering stress, suppressing anxiety, I didn't know what it was. I had to look it up in a dictionary one day. What's anxiety? I didn't know what it was. I went from no anxiety to panic attacks in one day. And for the next 15 years, I couldn't control it. And what happens is anxiety is simply a description of elevated stress chemicals. And it's, it's got psychological implications. But what happens, you have a mental threat, goes to, goes to part of the brain that says alert, but you can't escape it. So what I had done, I was so good at suppressing stress, I had no idea. We can talk about how cognitive behavioral therapy affects that because you should be switching sensory input, but, but, but the bottom line, I was suppressing stress to the point that I didn't know what was going on, but my feet were burning, my ears were ringing, I had migraine headaches, I had neck pain, back pain. There was my whole body was full of these stress chemicals on a sustained basis for over 15 years. The problem is you can't escape your thoughts. You have sustained elevations of these stress chemicals. It translates into real physical symptoms. I ring into my ears for 25 years. I never thought that would be gone. And you talk to people that have tinnitus or ringing in their ears, it's a horrible symptom. It's gone. Wow, that's amazing. Well, again, the nerve conduction improved, right? In other words, my threshold for these ears ringing changed with my body chemical changes. So when people say, well, you're seeing the pain psychological, no. 
the sensory input in the presence of con in the form of cognitive distortions. You want to put that in a different, simpler term, David? Well, I'm trying to figure out what you're going to say, so I can't put it in simpler terms until I get it. Okay, in other words, you have these unpleasant thoughts. Yeah, negative and thoughts, and you're upset, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're, you're angry, uh, you're, you're in an agitated uh, state. Right, and everybody knows that your heart's racing, you're sweating. That doesn't, it doesn't just happen. So the part that people have missed, and it's right there in front of us, I'm not going to claim original insight into this, is that thoughts translate into, into body chemical physical body chemistry changes, which has an effect on every organ in the body. That's why since there's so many different unique organs, there's over 30 symptoms of an adrenalized cortisol nervous system. For instance, autoimmune disorders. The study just came out of Sweden showing that there's a very strong correlation between chronic stress and autoimmune disorders. Rheumatoid arthritis, colitis, Crohn's disease. All these things are connected with chronic stress. The diseases don't just happen. I mean, why do they happen? Because it changes the cortisol, it changes the histamine levels, and so there's a very high instance of autoimmune disorders and chronic stress. And then is there any research about why someone would get rheumatoid arthritis and another person would get colitis? That part, that part we don't know. We don't know That's that. the part I can't... I mean, I, was, I, I had 17 of these 30 symptoms at the same time. There's over 30 symptoms of an adrenalized nervous system, I had 17 of them at the same time. Nobody could tell me what's going on. I was in a lecture in 2011 by a Dr. Howard Schumer from Detroit, who talked about this whole idea of the stressed out nervous system and the physical changes. And I started looking at this list of 33 symptoms and I'm going, wait a second. My wife was sitting next to me at the time and she, she started poking me. And I'm looking at this list and going, really? I 17. And all of a sudden, within 10 minutes, the entire 15-year journey started to make sense. And I started sharing those tools with my patients, but I wasn't... What, I, what tools? Well, just simple things of how to calm down the nervous system. In other words, if anxiety is simply a description of your elevated stress chemicals, the way you decrease anxiety is you decrease the stress chemicals. There's a tool called expressive... So David's book, by the way, was a major factor in me getting better. I started coming out of this process in 2001 where I have to pick up your book, Feeling Good. I started the writing exercises and I thought it was the book. And the book is a wonderful book. The three column technique is a wonderful technique. But in addition, it also shows that the writing exercises, David said to write, so I started to write. I didn't know what else to do. After 15 solid years of anxiety to the point of developing a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder, things started to break within two weeks. I'm going, wow. And by six weeks, I would say my anxiety was about 70% better. My feet at that point were burning so badly I couldn't even put into words how bad it was. The intrusive thoughts were coming at me so hard. I was just absolutely at the mercy of these things. I was suicidal. I'm pretty clear about that in my book. And within that six-week period of time after I started the three-column technique, things started to change. And I will admit that I started, I would write for hours at that point because it was such a, it's like I get out of jail. And I didn't do, know about do, the, do you remember what kind of negative thoughts you had at the time? I well, think what you're saying surgeon, is so, I mean, fascinating and really important. I mean, professionals, I don't, I don't want to say just surgeons, but I think a lot of professionals under a lot of stress, whether you're a general practitioner, family practice, whatever it is, there's lots of demands in medicine these days. 
Being a spine surgeon is considered one of the toughest professions ever because people expect perfection. It's technically a very challenging job. Our surgeries are 8, 10, 12 hours long. We're standing there the entire time. So I just was incredible at suppressing stress. And we're perfectionist. We're criticized all the time. So it's a negative self-talk. I'm not good enough. If you Let me write these down. These are so good. I'm not good enough. Well, the biggest one is that I could have done better or the case went really well, but I could have done a little bit better. God forbid you get a complication, which we do. And there's a 40% instance of significant depression after a major technical complication. Wait, from uh, the surgeon or the patient? The surgeon becoming depressed. Now, the, pa and the, the thing is so hard when spine surgery goes well, it goes beautifully. And patients do really well. Everybody's excited about it. But the same type of patient that comes in your office with a surgical complication, they don't do very well. You know what could have been. You understand what was possible. And all of a sudden, they're in your office with a dural tear, a foot drop. Something bad happens. People die. And every spine surgeon, it's a tough deal. Big blood losses, big operations, big complications. And the saying was, well, big surgery, big complications. Well, guess what? The surgeon doesn't really think that way. When the complication happens to you, it's terrible. So the not good enough becomes self-flagellation in a terrible way that I could have done better. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, the should thinking becomes brutal. In other words, I should have done this. Why did I do this? I had one gentleman, one gentleman in 1997 who went blind. Surgery went surgeon? perfect. The patient went blind. It's one of the known complications of spine surgery. And now it's disturbing to me even more is that my rehab of getting people better without surgery become so refined and so good this guy never needed surgery. I could have easily rehabbed. What I didn't know back then, he, he came to me about five years later for a little bit of a rod removal. And I'll never a forget. A rod removal of a rod from his spine. Well, his rod had broken into his prominence. So I just had to do about, about, about a half hour operation. I'll never forget this person because, first of all, I thought I was, I thought I was going to get sued. Obviously, major complication. He didn't do that. He walks in about three minutes later. He said, look, this is the deck of cards I was given. I'm going to play it. Just said flat out. Remarkable guy. Then I found out five years later that he's going through a horrible divorce. He married a younger woman who's trying to take his estate. Extreme stress. And see, what happens now, particularly when medicine moves so quickly, we're not talking to our patients as much. And so we just have to ask our patients one simple question is, what's going on? That question is unbelievable. It doesn't take a big psychological interview to do this. But a simple question is, what's going on? I mean, one woman, what was going on? Her daughter was having a baby. Her, her husband was the father. That's stress. So diagnosis isn't neck pain. The diagnosis is really untoward family circumstances. Probably 80% of the time when we ask that simple question, remember that bone spur has been there for a long time. All of a sudden, the bone spurs become symptomatic. What changed? Well, stress, tough circumstances, it changes the body's chemistry. The so, bone you're, so you're saying, if I can just simplify it a little bit for our listeners, is, is, is that um, doctors are, are trained to prescribe drugs, surgeons are trained to, to do sur surgery, but many people who go to doctors uh, go with physical symptoms of, say, pain or, or, or dizziness or 
chronic fatigue, they'll go to an internist thinking they're anemic or, or something. And that uh, a considerable uh, percentage of the time, the, uh, the problem is not a medical problem, but a human problem. Right. And so if the doctor can, can learn to ask what's going on in your life, or there are problems in your life, as opposed to let's do more MRIs, let's, let's do more diagnostic this, or give you this pill, or this surgical intervention, if we begin to focus on the emotional uh, problems uh, of, of our patients, and to give them some help to overcome the depression, the anxiety, and the anger, Correct. in many cases we'll see an improvement uh, uh, or uh, sometimes even a complete elimination of, of, of the pain. Well, how do you think, I'm just curious how you think patients would react to that because I, <clears throat> I would imagine a lot of times patients come in and they want they want to believe that there's like a, a specific physical problem that can be solved with well, when medicine I, or, or when surgery. When I was working on the Stanford inpatient unit with the, with the daily cognitive therapy groups, they had a, a pain center there, and so sometimes the severe pain patients would end up on the inpatient unit, and they'd come to the cognitive therapy groups. And I was interested in this issue of the relationship between pain and and emotional symptoms. And I developed, I don't know if you use it, but I have a two-item pain test that's, that can be given, scored and interpreted in less than five seconds. And it's 99% reliability, okay. and it's been validated against all the top pain instruments. And so it was part of, also part of the validation study for this brief pain test. But I had data on the patient's depression, anxiety, and anger at the beginning and end of each group. And so I got about 100, 120 patients and, and just analyzed the data because I had pain at the start and end of the group, depression at the start and end of the group. This is within an hour and a half period of time because I started noticing a lot of the chronic pain patients suddenly they were cured and symptom-free, just like what you're saying, right. 20 years of pain at the end of an hour and a half cognitive therapy group. Right. And, and so I was able to look at what is the causal effect of physical pain on depression, anxiety, and anger. Because a lot of the pain mm -hmm. patients said, I'm depressed because of my pain. And then what's the reciprocal causal effect of anyone, of any, on, on those negative feelings on pain? And so you have to do a kind of circular causal modeling when A causes B, but B, B might be causing A at the same time. And what the data showed, and I think we showed it for the first time, is that the reason so many pain patients are depressed, anxious, and angry is exactly what you've been saying in today's podcast. You use different language, but you're saying exactly the same thing, is because there was a powerful causal effect of negative emotions on pain. Like negative emotions magnify the experience of pain. And, it, and the, it approximately 50% of the pain that this is on average that people have mm -hmm. is due to their depression and anxiety and anger. Now, how do you deal with it? You ask the patient, would, would you want some help with your depression, anxiety, and anger in spite of the fact that you're in pain? You don't impose this on them. But if the patient says, yes, I'd love to get over my depression, anxiety, and anger, and then if they did, there was an average 50% decrease in pain, and that means that some of the patients, the pain disappeared entirely in the groups. Some of the patients, although they, their depression disappeared, the pain didn't change at all, so there was no causal effect, and some of them it went down on average 50%.
but I think it's the first proof uh, that, that there is a co powerful causal effect. And the reciprocal causal effect, to what extent do oppression, anxiety, and anger result from their phys chronic physical pain? That was, there was a causal effect, but it was very minimal. I, 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 without any commentary on, I mean, I, I certainly all make sense to me and certainly what, what David's saying um, supports all of that as well. I think my, I think my just main question is, as a doctor, if someone's coming in describing a physical symptom, my, you know, I guess my experience has been people can be very sensitive about the implication that there's a, like, there's an, a, an emotional or psychological Well, I would just tell the patient that my data and my clinical experience indicates there is a powerful effect of your negative emotions on your pain, uh -huh. and it can magnify the pain tremendously. And I've had the experience myself personally, just, just, just as you have had. I won't tell the story now, but uh, maybe in another podcast I, I, I will. But, but, but if, if you'd like, what I could do for you yeah. would, would be to help reduce your, your, your emotional suffering uh, to, in today's session. And that might have an effect of improving your pain, and it might, it might not. But at the very least, if we can get rid of your depression, you won't be depressed anymore. Would that be of interest to you? So it's saying, here's, what, here's the tools I can offer you. And As a psychiatrist? Yeah. But what do they come to you as a, as a surgeon? Well, I know, because it seems so easy to like, blame the person. Like, they come to you for pain, and you know, someone less sensitive might say, well, you know, you're in pain because... You know, there's something that you're doing, or there's something that you're thinking, or if you know, there's something the matter with you. When they're coming to you, like, hey, can you just do the surgery and make me feel better? Well, the essence of the solution, by the way, is helping people feel safe, right? And what I found out when I started this in Sun Valley, I was I was a primary care spine physician as opposed to a tertiary spine surgeon, and I just get to know them. And you're I think compassion has a role. It's is the, it is the key. In other words, everything we're talking about is secondary to simply knowing your patient, compassion. And again, I get that from your work and just my own experience. And I thought I was compassionate, but I was attached to my label of being compassionate as opposed to really being compassionate. So when I went through my own chronic pain, flaming burnout, I was stripped. I was stripped of all my identities. I had to connect to who I was. I was more able to connect to you and talk to you and find out who you are. So I just would find out who they are, what's going on. Most of them weren't sleeping, so we'd work on sleep. I didn't try to explain pain, and I just get to know them. And what I realized looking backwards, I had no resistance. I had maybe two people in four years that resisted the project. What happened? I had nothing to sell. People in pain want to hold onto their pain because it's powerful. You ask a person, do you want to get out of, get out of pain? They, they go, of course I do. Well, maybe not, right? Exactly. Right. And so what happened, I just found out, I, so what I do now, I know too much compared to back then. I knew nothing back then. I just did the best I could do. And people and people do go to pain-free, by the way. We have found out very clearly that chronic pain is a curable problem. The only factor that determines success versus failure is openness to change. Mm -hmm. So without trying to convince them that there's something to buy or engage in, I said, look, you don't have to believe anything. This, this is not about believing. So I said, look, let's work on your sleep. I'll see you back in a week. I do think what I contributed to people's healing was a structured program with a surgeon's mindset. In other words, I was offering non-operative care, but I was a surgeon. So instead of, instead of seeing them back in a month about sleep, I see them back in a week. Are you sleeping or are you not? And so I went right at it. Within six weeks, people were sleeping. Then David, I used your book back then in Sun Valley. I had no psychologist. So I, cool. him, I, used, I gave him the Feeling Good book. 
And then I started noticing, well, people either wouldn't read it or people would read it, but things weren't changing very much. But it was the people who were reading and writing actually were the ones that were getting better. Then I adjusted medications, which I never took people off medications. They always came off themselves. Narcotics were never an issue because they had control. Physical therapy conditioning has always been part of it. But the parts that's fascinating, which came out of it, was life outlook has everything to do with healing. Because if you're stuck in this morass of pain, and, and I get it, you're trying to fix a problem, your, your, focus is, your focus is on the problem, not the solution. Right. And so it turns out this life vision and execution of your vision is a pretty big deal. And so there's a whole sequence now that's evolved of actually coming out of the hole, getting some foundational work. Forgiveness is a big deal compared to play. Because when you're angry, your biochemistry is way off. When you're at play, your, your, your chemistry is optimized. But you can't mention the word play to somebody in pain because you're insulting them. You're not really honoring their suffering. You got to learn this from David's seminars on Tuesdays is really what I probably didn't do enough in retrospect is really honor how much they're suffering. Yeah. But people right. in chronic pain die early. They die seven years earlier than the average person. Yeah. So to, I like to make things simple. So it seems to me like you've t taught us uh, two or three things today. You may have ideas, Dave, Rondi, you may have ideas. But first of all, you had at one time a, a lucrative surgical practice doing spine surgery, uh, but uh, saw articles shocking that that the effectiveness just wasn't there. Maybe the outcomes were, you know, 15 to 22 percent of people were really recovering, and that and that bothered you, uh, bothered you a lot. A, a second thing was that you had your own suffering with panic and, and with neg negative emotions, and right. you saw in your own body the development of pain and all kinds of, of, of physical symptoms uh, ringing in your ears that that were making your life miserable and. And you saw how uh, emotional upset b began to evolve into physical pain, migraine, headaches, and all kinds of uh, symptoms. Uh, the third thing you're telling us is, is, is that you began to, to discover that when you learn to relax and overcome your own negative thoughts and feelings, partly from going to lectures and hearing other people speak, partly from reading my book, Feeling Good, right, and, and also doing the written exercises. And our next speaker is going to talk about the effective written exercises on circuits in the brain. Right. But that but doing the written exercises, you, be, you begin to feel less depressed, anxious, angry, your body began to settle down, and your pain began to, to, to be reduced. And the final thing you're telling us is then you, you made the courageous decision to give up doing all of this surgery and begin talking to your patients, bringing compassion and warmth and, and healing to what is the problem in your life. Right. Oh, your daughter's pregnant, and the father is your husband. My gosh. How over horrible is that? Tell me what's going on and how, how are you feeling? And when patients begin to talk about their feelings and deal with the issues in their life, all of a sudden, not in 100% of cases, but in many cases, the pain improved or, or disappeared completely. Correct. And finally, you're telling us that on a basic science level, if you look at the outcomes of all of this lucrative spinal surgery that's, that's going on, the outcomes are far more related to, to emotional issues than any actual structural uh, damage in, in, in the spine that's, that's corrected by surgery. Is Absolutely. that a summary? Correct. Very, very nicely done. 
Thank you. Oh, and, sure. what I, Go ahead. And, and the thing that strikes me too is that you, you, you divided the patients that you have current, you know, the ones without spinal surgery that you're working with in this, your new compassionate way, newer, um, you divided them to three people. You gave them all the feeling good book and some wouldn't open it. Right. Some would read it, but not, you know, dismiss it or wouldn't actively work the, the exercises. And some really delved deep into it. Right. And did the written exercises. And did the written exercises. Yeah. And it was those people, those patients that had the most successful outcome. And, you know, we called out, you know, that's just an example of motivation for, to healing. Right. And they were extremely motivated and they did the work. They put the work in and they got the results back. Right. And, but also our next speaker is going to show us how those written exercises actually change brain circuits. Yeah, great. My, micro neurosurgery. Yeah. Right. And then Dave, did you want to say something? I'm actually just curious how... You're obviously a, an incredibly conscientious um, doctor, but it was a, it was a surprise to you when you back in the '90s or whatever when you first saw the studies showing that the the surgery wasn't as successful as you'd thought. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, how is that possible? Like, how did you not see it, and how do other people not see it? Because I'm assuming you you follow up with the patients after you've done a surgery, but it, if if the success rates were that low, um, how did I mean? Had you how how is it that you didn't see it? I guess I don't mean it's to be critical, way I'm just curious. darker than you can imagine. So first of all, there's not one research paper, not one, that documents that a spine fusion works for back pain. Not one. And with the expressive writing, Dr. James Pennybaker started this research back in about 1982. He's on one of my podcasts that the expressive writing, he wrote a book called Opening Up by Writing It Down, has been document, documented to be effective in over a thousand research papers. A thousand. Okay, in good research. Okay, so... Spine surgeries, somewhere between 10 to $20 billion a year. The surgery is risky, dangerous, really hurts people. And then I never was taught about expressive writing. Were you? I mean, medical, I, I wasn't taught about expressive writing in medical school, residency, fellowship, practice. I never heard of it. But no one makes money off it, but we were taught to prescribe antidepressants that make a lot of money. And if you do surgery, you make a lot of money. And sometimes money, money blinds you. But it's the same question you could ask in... In psychiatry, because the data shows that in all psychiatric settings, 65% uh, of patients drop out of therapy prematurely from psychologists, mental health, uh, social workers, psychiatrists. If you ask psychiatrists how many of your patients drop out prematurely, they'll say 17%. You say how many of your colleagues do you think drop out prematurely, they'll say 35%. They think they're, they're twice as good as their colleagues. But the actual number is 65%. And you say, how, so how can you believe this that, that's so incorrect? And it's called, something called the clinician's illusion. And there's a chapter on it in my psychotherapy ebook, Tools, Not Schools of Therapy. How you, and one way you fool yourself is because you look at the patients you have, like in, in psychotherapy, the ones who stick with you. See, they're all happy, they're doing well. So you think, oh man, here are all my patients and I'm helping all of them and they're all doing well. And then the ones who drop out, you, you think, oh, they were kind of a, resistant or you know something like that or you, you you don't you don't attend to them it's very easy to get fooled but his question to you was how did you get fooled or maybe it, you weren't fooled no i was i mean I, I was really taught to be tough on patients i thought if somebody you couldn't see it, it wasn't there um, i had an extremely traditional approach it's still being done now even more now than ever the a research paper came out last month in the journal of pain not one procedure in any field, I think you mentioned before, doesn't work for chronic pain anywhere. 
Yeah. No, any of them, not just spine surgery, any procedure with any part of the body, because it's a memorized circuit that you can't fix with the procedure. The data is right there. We're ignoring the data. There's another paper that Baltimore shows that only 10% of surgeons are acknowledging the known data that affects outcomes. 10%. That's it. It sounds it. like the, the surgeons are also not acknowledging the experience of the patients. Correct. Right. I mean, right. otherwise they wouldn't need to go to the data. But Manny right. Thompson, I mean, that's why we have the opioid crisis too. This is a topic for another day. But when you're making money, you, it's hard to see the truth. You want to see what you believe, what's, right. put, what's putting, putting money in, in your pocket. We want to thank you for this fantastic I, are there Are there, new do, are there other doctors that today. are learning? Oh, I'm sorry. Are you able to train other doctors to do? I am. To, I mean, I'll just, just finish off with saying that, you know, I, I actually quit my spine surgical practice in December really at the peak of my career, having a wonderful time, but obviously three to five patients every week badly, badly damaged by spine surgery that they didn't need. So I wrote a book called Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? It'll be released in October. I have a website, backincontrol.com. We watch hundreds and hundreds of patients go to pain with a largely self-directed process. It doesn't take a big pain clinic to do this. And so the website's backincontrol.com. But I've seen such incredible success with these simple... Just summarize that because you speak too fast. Okay. You said something yeah. very important. You have a website called backincontrol.com that all of you listening with back pain can go to. And you sent two people there. What I happened? I have sent two of my patients okay. there since we've met. Okay. And one of them um, actually dropped out. So okay. I don't know what happened to him. But the other one is, is just incredibly happy. Oh, cool. And is following your program and the things that you're talking. And he said he sees the light for the first time in probably 15 years. So I'm watching that happen all the time. People getting, getting pain-free with no risk, no cost, nothing. And I watch them being badly damaged by spine surgery. I just had to quit. So I really did quit. I'm really committed to trying to get this out to the world. And every week, another physician or two comes on board. A physical therapist comes on board. I get to do podcasts like this, which I really appreciate. But yeah, it's a big problem. And the message needs to get out to the general public and mainstream medicine that this is just data that's been proven for centuries. This is not new stuff. Well, what you're doing is fantastic. And we're so happy to support you today and hope to continue to support your wonderful work in the future. And thank you for giving up a lucrative career to be helping people for free, but perhaps you're now uh, uh, gaining a new form of wealth and riches. I, I haven't treated, charged anyone for psychotherapy for at least 25 years, but uh, I treat people all the time and, and there's nothing better than seeing people recover and, and participate in that miracle. And so neat to see you're doing exactly the same thing from the other side of the medical uh, of the medical divide, and I'm just so proud of you and proud to know you and just grateful to have you with us here today. Yeah, no, thank you very much. As you know, I'm a huge fan and I appreciate your work. I honestly wouldn't be here without it. So, you know, it's been a huge factor in my work and I, and I appreciate this opportunity very much. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. I hope you come back and talk about how pain affects families. Okay. We have no commercial messages today except to say that the podcast is growing. And if you like what you're doing, uh, tell your friends. You're our main source of marketing, word of mouth. Uh, we're, we have a lot of free resources on my website, feelinggood.com. The podcasts are just one of them. And a lot of wonderful resources for you at www.backintocontrol.com. So thank you so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. 
For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com, where you will find the show notes for this episode under the podcast page. You will also find archives of previous episodes and many resources for therapists and non-therapists. We welcome your comments and questions. If you want to support the show, please share the podcast with people who might benefit from it. You could also go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. The theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donsel. I am your host, Rhonda Borowski. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.